Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was given on June 18, 1958 by Joseph Fielding Smith, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm pleased to be here with you. I'm going to do something that is very unusual so far as I'm concerned. I'm not in the habit of writing speeches. But on this occasion, I thought it would be wise to type the remarks that I might want to make. Before launching on this subject, it may be well for us to consider briefly what the priesthood is and something in relation to its history. President Joseph F. Smith has given us this definition of priesthood. It is nothing more nor less than the power of God delegated to man by which man can act on the earth for the salvation of the human family in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and act legitimately, not assuming that authority nor borrowing it from generations that are dead and gone but authority that has been given in this day in which we live by ministering angels and spirits from above, direct from the presence of God. It is the same power and priesthood that was committed to the disciples of Christ while he was upon the earth, that whatsoever they should bind on earth should be bound in heaven, and whatsoever they should loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. President Lorenzo Snow also made the following comment. The priesthood or authority in which we stand is the medium or, or channel through which our Heavenly Father has purpose to communicate light, intelligence, gifts, powers, and spiritual and temporal salvation unto the present generation. However, the priesthood is far more than this. It is the great power by and through which our eternal Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, performed their work throughout the universe. The greatness and glory of the priesthood we in our limited sphere do not fully understand. 
We read in the word of the Lord that judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne and governeth and executeth all things. He comprehendeth all things. And all things are before him and all things are round about him. And he is above all things and in all things and is through all things and is round about all things. And all things are by him, and of him even God, forever and ever. He it is who has given a law unto all things by which they move in their times and in their seasons. It is by this divine power that our Heavenly Father rules and controls the universe. In the beginning, as far as the world is concerned, the priesthood is first given to Adam. On this, the prophet Joseph Smith has said, The priesthood was first given to Adam. He obtained the first presidency and held the keys of it from generation to generation. He obtained it in the creation before the world was formed. He held dominion given him over every living creature. He is Michael the archangel, spoken of in the scriptures. Then to Noah, who is Gabriel, he stands next in authority to Adam in the priesthood. He was called of God to this office and was the father of all living in this day. And to him we give the dominion. These men held keys first on earth and then in heaven. The priesthood is an everlasting principle and existed with God from eternity and will to eternity. Without beginning of days or end of years, the keys have to be brought from heaven whenever the gospel is sent. When they are revealed from heaven, it is by Adam's authority. The priesthood of Adam and from Adam to Moses was the patriarchal order. Of this order, the Lord has said, The order of this priesthood was confirmed to be handed down from father to son, and rightly belongs to the literal descendants of the chosen seed to whom the promises were made. This order was instituted in the days of Adam and came down by lineage, the keys evidently being held by the following prophets to the days of Noah. Adam... Seth, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. This same priesthood continued principally through the seed of Abraham until the days of, Mo of Moses. The Lord offered it to Israel in the days of Moses, but they were not prepared nor worthy to receive it. 
he would have made of all the tribes of Israel a royal priesthood. But they rebelled. Therefore, the Melchizedek priesthood, for that was the name by which it was called since the days of Melchizedek, was taken away from Israel, and the Aaronic priesthoods given with the law of Moses added as a schoolmaster. And with this, the tribes of Israel had to be content. During all of these years, from the time of Moses to the coming of our Lord, it was necessary that there be some prophets who held the Melchizedek priesthood. Therefore, the Lord raised up prophets in Israel on whom the high priesthood was conferred. But each ordination was a special call. In relation to this, the prophet Joseph Smith has said, Was the priesthood of Melchizedek taken away when Moses died? All priesthood is Melchizedek. But there are different portions or degrees of it. That portion which brought Moses to speak with God face to face was taken away. But that which brought the ministry of angels remained. All of the prophets held the Melchizedek priesthood and were ordained by God himself. The prophets who held the Melchizedek priesthood, with few exceptions, following the departure of Moses, were more or less restricted in their jurisdiction. It was essential that the Melchizedek priesthood be in Israel after Moses was taken, in order that the gift of the Holy Ghost could be given. But the tribes of Israel had forfeited their right to it because of their rebellion. For instance, the prophet Elijah held the keys of the sealing power and was, according to the word of the Lord, the last of those prophets until the coming of Christ to whom the keys of this that authority had been given. Therefore, there were restrictions placed upon other prophets, although they were blessed with the Melchizedek priesthood. When the Savior entered his ministry, one of the early things he did was to call twelve men. It is written that he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness, and all manner of disease. The name of these twelve are familiar to all. They were Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. While the record does not say so, it is very evident that the Savior conferred upon the apostles with its keys and authorities, the apostleship. 
Later he said to them, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It is believed by some because of what the Lord said to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, that this authority to bind and loose was a gift to Peter only. This, however, is not the case. For this commission was given to the entire twelve. In fact, each received the fullness of the apostleship so that each, should the time come, serve as the senior or president of the church in his turn. The order of the church today is based on that same principle. Moreover, the Lord selected Peter, James, and John and set them to the front to act as a first presidency after his departure. Evidence of this is found in the fact that on several occasions the Savior took these three with him to attend to special duties. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. There, according to the prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord with Moses and Elias ministered unto them and gave them the keys of the priesthood. The priesthood is everlasting. The Savior Moses and Elias gave the keys to Peter, James, and John on the Mount I'm quoting the prophet Joseph Smith. When they were transfigured before him, the priesthood is everlasting without beginning of days or end of years, without father, mother, and so forth. If there is no change in ordinances, there is no change of priesthood. Wherever the ordinances of the gospel are administered, there is the priesthood. How have we come at the priesthood in the last days? It came down, down in regular succession. Peter, James, and John had it given to them, and they gave it to others. Christ is the great high priest. Adam next. Paul speaks of the church coming to an innumerable company of angels, to God the judge of all, the spirit of the just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. The fact that Peter, James, and John were separated from the other apostles and given special authority was the forerunner of the quorum of the first presidency in our day. It should be perfectly clear from what is written that these three apostles formed such a presidency. Therefore, on the death of Peter and James, it was John who, by right of authority, became the presiding officer of the church. That is, to say, that is very apparent to Latter-day Saints that these three were a presidency to do, due to the fact and all three came to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and conferred upon them the Melchizedek priesthood. 
One of the first intimations that there were to be chosen 12 apostles in this dispensation is found in the revelation given at Fayette, New York, in June 1829, where the three witnesses were appointed to search out the twelve, seventeen years before the twelve were called. This is a wonderful revelation of counsel intended for the twelve. The brethren select, selected for this important calling were men who had proved their integrity in Zion's camp. On the 14th day of February, 1835, the prophet called the brethren who had gone to Missouri in Zion's camp to assemble, for he had a blessing for them. He stated that the object of the meeting was to choose men for important positions in the ministry. He had been commanded of the Lord to call men of integrity and faith. Among these would be twelve to be ordained as apostles in the church. These men were, according to Revelation, to be selected by the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. After the usual, usual opening exercises, the three witnesses were blessed by the laying on of hands of the First Presidency that they might have the inspiration to make the selection. I will name these a little later. According to the teachings of Paul, it was the intention that when vacancies occurred in the Council of the Twelve, that these vacancies should be filled. For he declared to the saints in his day at Ephesus, while arguing for the unity of the church, and he gave them, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We all know also that after the fall of Judas, the disciples met and by the inspiration of the Lord selected Matthias to fill the vacancy. We know also that it was but a short time following the death of the Lord, that James, one of the three, was killed. That Paul was called to be an apostle is evident from many of the epistles, and Barnabas was also so called. We look upon James, who wrote the epistle, and Jude as being apostles. If so, then they must have taken the places of others who had passed away. The question is sound one, that the apostles in that day were intended to be in the church throughout the years.
But apostasy stepped in and the ways of the Lord were perverted. In our day, by command of the Lord, men have been chosen to carry on the work of the twelve whenever vacancy occurs. In the Book of Mormon, we read that this was the custom among the Nephites. It was never intended that there should be but twelve men called to this position and no more when vacancies occurred. Our scriptures are perfectly clear on this point. The names of, in the order in which they were called, of the first council of twelve, are as follows. First was Lyman E. Johnson. Second, Brigham Young. Third, Eber C. Kimball. Four, Orson Hyde. Five, David W. Patton. Six, Luke S. Johnson. Seven, William E. McClellan. Eight, John F. Boynton. Nine, Orson Pratt. Ten, William Smith. Eleven, Thomas B. Marsh. Twelve, Parley P. Pratt. Later, these brethren were arranged in order of Precedence according to their age, as follows. One, Thomas B. Marsh. Two, David W. Patton. Three, Brigham Young. Four, Heber C. Kimball. Five, Orson Hyde. Six, William E. McClellan. Seven, Parley P. Pratt. Eight, Luke S. Johnson. 9. William Smith 10. Orson Pratt 11. John F. Boynton 12. Lyman E. Johnson After the selection, the witnesses, according to their, their divine appointment, ordained these brethren. Verse 3 were ordained at this meeting and on the following day, all of the others, except Thomas B. Marsh, Parley P. Pratt, and Orson Pratt. Elders Marsh and Orson Pratt were in the mission, and Parley P. Pratt did not arrive until late in April. This solemn gathering, a charge was given to these apostles. March 12, 1835, they met in council and petitioned the First Presidency to seek for them a revelation that would guide them in their labors. The answer to their petition was given March 28, 1835. When the great revelation on priesthood was received, section 107. I do not understand how any member of the church can read this revelation without being thoroughly convinced of its divine origin. It should be thoroughly studied in the spirit of humility and faith by every member of the church holding the priesthood. 
In fact, such a study is imperative if we wish to know something of the greatness, glory, and responsibilities of the priesthood. It is difficult to believe that any person can read this inspired document and not be definitely convinced of the prophetic powers of the prophet Joseph Smith. Without this revelation, we would still be groping in the dark in relation to our duties and the divine organization of priesthood in the church. It is true that a few years later, several of these men who had been honored by a call to become special witnesses for Christ with a divine injunction to carry the message of the restored gospel to all the world, fell away. Of course, they had pledged themselves by solemn covenant to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ and serve him diligently in this calling and without fear or favor of men. To go in all the world, no matter where the hardships might be, and sacredly perform this duty. I am fully convinced that they were good men, that they had faithfully performed their labor while laid, which laid the foundation for their call to this sacred ministry. Yet they fell from the high and holy calling. What was the reason? First, the severe opposition which they met. But more particularly because when adverse circumstances came, they commenced to complain. Then added to this the false rumors of afloat, the leading brethren had not been true to sacred trusts, and feeling that they, the disgruntled members, had been injured in financial ventures. It was a period of great financial depression and universal reverses, and there were some who failed to have the clear vision to help them weather the storm. Unjust accusations arose in their souls against the prophet and some of the brethren who remained faithful and true. All of these and other conditions preyed upon their souls, and as they gave way to, the, to this sin, the Spirit of the Lord withdrew, and they were left to themselves, and darkness replaced the light which is formerly in their souls. One of these original brethren returned years later, fully repentant, seeking forgiveness, and when reinstated in the church, remained faithful and true to the end. The others apparently never overcome their bitterness. Yet the story is told of one of these that years later he had the privilege of associating with his former companions and talking over the experiences which he had when faithfully performing his duty. He made a remark something like this, I would give everything in the world if I could feel as I did when I was associated with you. But he did not and perhaps could not 
repent. For repentance is a gift of God. Naturally, when these brethren fell, others were selected to take their places. It seems strange that men can have the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord and then fall away. But such things have happened from the very beginning. The examples of these unfaithful men and their miserable end should impress every member of the church that humility, faith, and obedience should be at the very foundation of their, of their character. No man is tempted beyond his capacity or power to resist. It is only when one yields to temptation or wanders oh so slightly from the path of rectitude that Satan obtains the advantage and destroys one's faith. So many times we have been warned that it is he who endures to the end that shall be saved. The Lord gave a warning to the members of the church at the very time of its organization to walk in paths of righteousness in deep humility with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. We know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. That all those who love the and serve God with all their might minds and strength. But there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pay, pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. The failure of men to live up to their covenants men who one time were filled with light and truth, should be to us a constant warning. We have been warned constantly that it is he who endures to the end that shall be saved. But let us return to those who, even under these difficult and most trying circumstances, remained faithful and true. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, David W. Patton, Willard Richards, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and many others. No men passed through more by way of persecution, ridicule, hatred than did these men who under all the circumstances that confronted them remained loyal and true. These are the men who remained loyal to the prophet Joseph Smith. And had they been called upon to do so, they would have laid down their lives with the prophet and his brother Hiram, willingly. And would have died for them. The Lord will place within his reach, in the reach of every honest soul who is willing to seek the truth, a testimony of his divine truth. 
Let us consider briefly the great responsibilities which devolve upon the apostles. There are special witnesses for Jesus Christ. It is their right to know the truth and to have an abiding witness. And this is an exacting duty upon them, to know that Jesus Christ is the very, in very deed the only begotten Son of God, the Redeemer of the world, and the Savior of all those who will confess their sins, repent, and keep his commandments. The question frequently arises, is it necessary for the members of the Council of the Twelve to see the Savior in order to be apostles? It is their privilege to so live if occasion requires, but the Lord has taught that there is a stronger witness than seeing a personage, even that of the Son of God. The Savior said, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the bad blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Therefore, seeing even the Savior does not leave as deep an impression in, this, in the mind as does the testimony of the Holy Ghost to the Spirit. Both Peter and Paul understood this. Here are the words of Paul. And having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. What is the lesson to be learned from this? That the impressions on the soul that come from the Holy Ghost are far more significant than a vision. It is where spirit speaks to spirit. And the imprint upon the soul is far more difficult to erase. Every member of the church should have the impressions on his soul made by the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Son of God indelibly pictured so that they cannot be forgotten. We read, this in the Spirit is the Spirit that giveth life. In the Revelation on Priesthood, there are three quorums mentioned that have special authority. First, the First Presidency, and of this quorum we have this, the following. Of the priesthood of Melchizedek, there are three presiding high priests chosen by the body, appointed and ordained to this office and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayers of the church form a quorum of the presidency of the church. The twelve traveling counselors are called to be the twelve apostles or special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, thus differing in the, in the duties of their calling. And they form a quorum equal in authority and power to the three presidents previously mentioned, the seventy, are also called to preach the gospel and to be special witnesses. 
under the Gentiles and in all the world, thus differing from other officers in the church in the duties of their calling. And they form a quorum equal in authority to that of the twelve special witnesses just named. And every decision made by either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same. That is, every member in each quorum must be agreed to its decisions in order to make their decisions of the same power and validity one with the other. The majority may form a quorum when circumstances render it impossible, impossible to be otherwise. Unless this is the case, their decisions are not entitled to the same blessings which the decisions of the quorum of the three presidents were anciently, who were ordained after the order of Melchizedek and were righteous and holy men. Of course, there cannot be three quorums of equal authority at the same time. Such a thing could lead to confusion if each of the three, or even two of the three, made adverse decisions. The natural interpretation of this is, and is well understood, that only in the destruction of the first quorum, the presidency of the church, would the second or apostles step forth to make a decision. This has happened each time that the first presidency has been disorganized by the death of the president. Then only until a new first presidency was organized would this council of the twelve exercise this authority. Should the time ever come, which is unlikely, that both the council of the first presidency and the council of the twelve were destroyed, would the 70 step forth to make a decision for the church. Then they would drop back to their normal position. The 12 are a traveling, presiding high council to officiate in the name of the Lord under the direction of the first presidency of the church, agreeable to the institutions of heaven, to build up the church and regulate all the affairs of the same in all the nations, first to the Gentiles, and then to the Jews. The seventy are to act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the twelve, or the traveling high council, in building up the church and regulating all the affairs of the same in all nations, first unto the Gentiles, and then to the Jews. The twelve being sent out, holding the keys to open the door by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and first unto the Gentiles and then unto the Jews. It is the duty of the traveling high council to call upon the 70 when they need assistance to fill the several calls for preaching and administering the gospel instead of any others. It is the duty of the 12 in all large branches of the church to ordain evangelical ministers as they shall be de designated unto them by revelation. Thus, the request of the original twelve to obtain knowledge concerning their duties was given by revelation from the Lord.
The Lord bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.